So many, many people in the room, um, many of our master students come fresh from Manchester um, and it's um, partly bruising and partly successful experience of two Olympic bids, um, whereas I mentioned there, um, Bob's got the person who put in the Olympic bid once and never mentioned sport, and let's talk about regeneration. Um, and that was his uh, sentence experience of Olympic bids up in Manchester at the time. Um, obviously that led to the Commonwealth Games, but eventually uh, the Olympics came to London. And we're very, very pleased to have Richard Brown here to talk to us. Um, just past 2012 about the legacy of the Games. So Richard is the Strategic Director, um, working for 10 years for London Mayors, for the current Mayor, and for Ken Livingstone before that, 10 years experience on the Olympic side, um, with a sort of economic regeneration um, background experience. He will fill in more as he sees necessary his professional background, but otherwise he's going to talk to us about the Olympic legacy. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <coughs> I'm going to uh, run through our plans for the Olympic Park Legacy. I've put up there Olympic Park Legacy Plus, and I almost feel embarrassed to have to start off with the L word, which is one of those words that's becoming more and more used and less and less meaningful as time goes by. Um, <coughs> and I saw last week that um, financial problems on the Don Valley Stadium were being described as a disaster for London's Olympic legacy. I was trying to join, join the dots on that, but I uh, couldn't quite. But we're going to talk about the Olympic Park's legacy and the legacy that we hope will emanate out from the Olympic Park. I'm not going to directly address many of the other aspects of legacy, such as the nationwide volunteering legacy, the school sport legacy such as it is, or even Tom Daly's appearance doing dive on TV. So to start with the context, the... <coughs> London's Olympic bid was always framed within the context of London's strategic plan developed by other people, Duncan who's sitting here, <laughs> um, but which was a plan that involved the shift eastwards in London's economic and development geography. Um, London's changing so fast that this slide is already well out of date, it's missing at least one giant shard sticking there. Um, <coughs> but for many years, ever since you saw, I guess, Bob Hoskins in the Long Good Friday extolling the virtues of the Docklands, um, East London has been London's big, unfulfilled opportunity. Um, the deprivation there has been persistent. The need for new employment opportunities and new housing has been persistent. There have been successes like Canary Wharf, um, led in part by Eric who's sitting there. But East London has continued to be the part of London that's about to happen, the next big project, continually on the verge of happening. And since the 80s, um, <coughs> While East London has been on the verge of happening, the population has started growing again. And this actually dates to growth from 1991. I think I've seen other graphs that date it from the mid-1980s. And we're in a position now of population estimated for 2007 at around 7.5 million, by 2016 up to 8.1 million, and by 2031, 8.9 million people within London. Now this is not, in terms of global cities, this is not a hugely fast rate of development. In terms of northern European cities, this is um, highly <coughs> high-speed development and is driven primarily, as people here will know, by international migration. Um, and then you come to the Lee Valley um, on London's, what was historically London's eastern edge. This historically was the edge of London, um, and this was the area which, because of its natural attributes, the waterways running through it, 
and because of its location just outside the city boundaries, became a major point for industrial development in, through the 19th century. Um, easy access down to docks and the use of the rivers in industrial processes and the lack of some of the legislation that was introduced municipally within Greater London made this a hotspot for industrial development. And that left behind, in 2005, a residual uh, set of industries and uh, other uses on the site, but also a really complex set of infrastructural um, constraints. Um, the greenway, um, the Basel Jet sewer running through the site, the main rail corridors, rail switching yards, and through it, natural and canalised waterways. So an extremely complex site, and running, not quite visible in this shot, but running from across it, a set of high voltage power lines. So <coughs> an incredibly complex and constrained site, um, and a site which needed a broader um, vision and approach. And here's just a picture of the site in 2005. I sometimes call this on a clear day, you can see the banker's bonuses. This, I think, is the edge of the legendary Fridge Mountain, one of the uh, former wonders of East London. Um, <coughs> but those sort of images shouldn't push you into, I suppose, adopting a place-hating mentality towards this part of London. Looked at from the ground, there were interesting, fascinating areas. There was these pockets of almost Arcadian uh, rural beauty of canal towpaths, looked better in the sunshine, admittedly, canal towpaths, waterways, and green space. You have a population that is genuinely one of the most diverse in London, in the world, um, a point of arrival for, for successive generations of immigrants to London. And I saw only um, last week, um, The Guardian was running a piece about our newest growing community, the Lithuanian community, and sure enough, and entirely unsurprisingly, Waltham Forest and Newham were the fastest growing areas with a Lithuanian population. And also an area which, partly through its marginalisation has inspired and hosted a great deal of creativity. And the area of Hackney Wick, where you can hardly throw a shark in formaldehyde without hitting an artist, uh, with the Hackney Wick festivals, with garden festivals, allotments, and the number of fringe and often unofficial uses taking place. So quite a um, diverse set of activities in the area. But it's also an area where, um, oh, this just said, do I want to turn the system on? Um, it's also an area where there's been an incredible volume of change in recent years. The extension of the Jubilee Line up to Stratford, the development of Stratford International Station, which one, may, one day may even host internationally stopping train services, and perhaps most notably in the run-up to the Olympics, the development of the Westfield Shopping Centre um, just to the north of Stratford Regional Railway Station. That's a shopping centre that's now seeing 50 million people visiting, according to the uh, Westfield, every year. So there was already a lot going on in the run-up to the Olympics, partly catalysed by the Olympics and partly enabling the Olympics to take place. And I think that created a challenge, which is to try to manage the process of development in this area, because around other areas of the park, this was manifesting itself, this impetus was manifesting itself in small one-off gated communities, rather than an approach that actually connected and started to reform those connections across the Lee Valley. So we had an amazing time last summer. Um, I think one of the, there were a number of impacts of the Olympics themselves, I think one of the most um, dramatic was perhaps how Londoners started to redraw their mental maps. And this place which had been over there, East London, Stratford, somewhere that you only went to if you knew it, if you had cause to go there, became somewhere that felt more connected into the rest of London. 
we often have a, our offices are in Stratford and we often find that particularly when people from the real estate developers and that type come out for meetings so they, they take the tube they end up arriving about 10 or 15 minutes early because in their mental map they think that Stratford is quite a long way away they don't realise it's only from here about half an hour and <coughs> In the run-up to the games, and during the games themselves, you have this enclosed site. So this was from 2005 up to 2012, and still today, one has a closed-off site, sealed off for reasons of security, sealed off for construction logistics, sealed off for the event itself. The challenge now is to break that open again, and to use it as an opportunity to start making some of those connections across the waterways, across other barriers such as railways, sewers, uh, motorways, and start to connect the different areas of London back together again. And that brings us to the establishment of the London Legacy Development Corporation. We're the first of a new type of organisation. Um, we were provided for in the Localism Act that passed last year. And we are similar in many ways to urban development corporations, which, such as the London, London Docklands Development Corporation uh, that operated around the Isle of Dogs, Dogs and the Docklands. Um, however, we're different in, I think, two significant ways. One is that we have accountability to the elected Mayor of London rather than central government. We are a GLA group organisation. Uh, the Mayor appoints our board, and this Mayor has actually taken the decision to chair our board as well. Um, we also have not just the power to take planning decisions, but also the power to set planning policy for the area within our boundary. And that area is deliberately drawn wider than the Olympic Park itself. Here is the area... Um, that's now within the Olympic Park. The dotted lines, by the way, represent borough boundaries. Our area also brings in surrounding areas, Hackneywick, Fish Island, Sugarhouse Lane, Three Mills, Chobham Farm, and just nudging up towards Leighton Mills in the north. Because one of the aims of this organisation is not to seek to create a successful but isolated um, redevelopment, as perhaps people have accused Canary Wharf of being, but to create something that does actually make a different difference between, <coughs> sorry, does actually make a difference to the wider East London area, and where, to a certain, to a certain extent, the boundaries between Olympic Park, what was the Olympic Park, and what are, is the existing area, become permeable and permeable rather than fixed. So that's our status. We are the main landowner in the Olympic Park. We've inherited the land that was bought up by the London Development Agency. Um, but we're not the only landowner. We do need to work not only with the local boroughs, um, but with organisations like the Lee Valley Regional Park Authority, who have land in the north, um, London Continental Railways, who hold land there, um, and Westfield itself, and Network Rail, all different sites on <coughs> um, within our boundaries. So while we are, I think, probably uniquely and well-equipped in terms of our land ownership, we are not the only landowner. We are not capable of operating on our own. And what we inherit at the moment is the responsibility for transforming the Olympic Park site. Um, the site was closed immediately after the closing ceremony of the Paralympic Games, and at the moment there's a process of clearing, connecting and completing the park going on. And that is clearing away all the temporary facilities, largely in these dark patches that we use for the Olympic Games. That's back of house for broadcasting vans, for athletes' accommodation, for officials. So all of these dark areas are areas where there's takedown of temporary facilities, temporary venues like the basketball arena that was up here. Um, and that leaves us the bones of the Olympic Park. Um, the aquatic centre, the stadium, press and broadcast centre, 
the velodrome, um, the athlete's village itself, and to the north, um, Eton Manor, and the central spine of Parkland itself. So that's a process of clearing away that Olympic Park, um, Olympic Games time um, infrastructure, starting to connect, for, build these new bridges into a legacy configuration that connect the Olympic Park into the surrounding areas. Um, during the games, for those who went there, all those door access was through the Stratford Shopping Centre. Um, we'll be opening up more bridges that connect through to Hackneywick, um, to Leytonstone, um, and to the south, to Carpenter's Estate. Um, and to complete the conversion of the venues to a viable uh, legacy configuration. And I'll talk a little bit more about the plans for the individual venues in a moment. <coughs> but in the long term, as we reopen as Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, um, we'll start building flesh onto those bones again, onto that skeleton. And here is one of those quite fanciful artist impressions of exactly what it will look like in 2030. But you can see housing being built in from outside, some of it in larger block formation, that's actually the Olympic Village, some of it more matching terraced house configurations that are typical of London. So that's the long-term destination, and here is another um, entirely 100% accurate artist's impression of what it will look like in 2030. Um, you can see the aquatic centre there with its wings taken off and the glass sides put in. You can see the orbit. Uh, still be there, and you can see the re-landscaping, the way that the landscaping has been changed from something very um, formal and monumental to something more intimate in scale, more like a typical London park. And there is actually the edge of the Stratford City development. Um, I'd like to touch, before I go into the detail of our plans, on some of the lessons we've tried to learn from previous events. Um, it's easier sometimes to learn from what hasn't worked in previous events than what has worked. Um, these are photos taken, um, what I did on my holidays a couple of years ago, and I went to Athens for New Year, I went for a walk down in the coastal area, as you can see, a gorgeous, sunny New Year's Day, quite warm, quite pleasant, would, would, there would have been people sitting out if there was anywhere to sit out. When you visited the Olympic zone, their coastal zone in Faliro, it was absolutely desolate. Uh, there was nobody there apart from, well, I think two slightly confused tourists being followed around by men in security vans wondering what we were doing. So it's easy to see areas that have become emptied out after the Games that haven't had a legacy plan. I think one of our critical lessons was to start planning for legacy early, uh, which is why the Legacy Corporation was set up in April 2012, and legacy plans have been evolving over several years. Some of our other lessons are closer to home. Um, if one thinks of successful legacies, we have at least two in London. Um, Exhibition Road was a highly successful legacy of the 1851 Great Exhibition. Um, the, the building of the cultural and educational institutions along the road took about 40 years after the Great Exhibition itself, um, but is now obviously a major tourist destination for Londoners um, and internationally, with everything from the V&A and natural history and science museums to the Royal Albert Hall and Albert Memorial. We also, on the south bank of the Thames, have the legacy of the Great Exhibition, or the, fest sorry, the Festival of Britain of 1951. Um, see here the plan from the original programme. And that again has left behind it one of those areas in London that you go and visit, not just because there's one thing to see there, but because there is a whole area to walk around, spend half a day in, um, to enjoy not just the views over the river, but the cultural offerings <laughs> there are in those um, buildings. We're also seeking to learn from the traditions of London's house building, some of the successful 
um, large-scale estate developments. This is Notting Hill, but it could quite easily be Deger Estate in um, East London. Many of the areas <coughs> which have seen successful building of not just homes but communities with a London flavour, that sort of mid-rise, high-density but mid-rise and also green type of development. So in learning from those, we've been set um, these objectives by our board and the mayor. Um, and I think the trick for us as an organisation, what will determine whether we succeed or not, is the extent to which we can bring these together, balance them and make them mutually supportive. So we, we need, perhaps most immediately, when we start to reopen the park and venues, to make them a successful destination for London. Um, to make them places where people want to come, to make them places that are enlivened with events all year round. We also want to build around that, and that, I guess, is the medium-term objective, the new communities. We've got around 7,000 new homes to build, in addition to what's going in the Athletes' Village, also commercial uh, activity coming into the area, also different uh, mixture of uses. So we create new communities within the park to connect to the areas outside. And lastly, and underpinning all of those, to try to create local opportunities and transformative change that will make a difference for local people and contribute to the long-term aim of converging the economic fortunes of this part of London um, with the rest. So I'm going to talk through those major areas briefly now. Park and venues first. Um, this is what we retain. Um, you can see the stadium and the orbit. And I've divided the park into two here because we see the parks having two quite different characters in Legacy. Um, the North Park will stay very much as it was during the games, those green riverbanks intensively planted, a lot of trees there, somewhere that's actually quite a quiet, peaceful um, environment, much more like a traditional park. Whereas in the South Park, the South Plaza as we call it, there will be much more um, significant spaces for big concerts, big events, and be much more civic um, and active space uh, with a lot more going on there rather than people creating their own entertainment through um, playing game of football, walking the dog, whatever it might be. And around that, there'll be grouped these facilities. You can see the broadcast centre, the multi-use arena, the cotton box, uh, the orbit, the aquatic centre in the distance, and the stadium around those. So, retaining the character of the park, the rivers forming the central spine, with the green around that, and the venues around that. Um, the Olympic Stadium has been probably our most difficult um, project to date. I'm not trying to brush past it that quickly. <laughs> oh, wrong way. Um, I mean, the original plan for that, it's worth pausing on the Olympic Stadium story, because I think it is a story of how we've learned as we've gone through. The original plan for that was to take it from an 80,000 structure. Determined, not going to do this. Yeah. <coughs> to go from an 80,000 structure to a 25,000 structure. And all that superstructure you can see there, the white tubular structure that you can see from outside the building, was designed to be demountable and taken down after the games. So you'd be left with basically what's a podium level and below, a concrete bowl uh, for athletics. The trouble is the 25,000 seat athletics stadium would be used for a few weekends in the summer, but not at all the rest of the year, and risk becoming um, a white elephant, a smaller white elephant than during the Olympics, but a white elephant nonetheless. Um, so we've gone through th two rounds now of trying to find a bigger balance of uses that enables the stadium to be used at a larger capacity all the way through the year. And <coughs> as you know, we're towards the, as you've probably seen, it does get in the papers occasionally, 
Um, we're towards the end of the process with um, West Ham United as a winter sport concessionaire for the stadium. So the model we're looking at now is that we retain ownership and we have concessions for West Ham United for winter sports. We had to say winter sports, not football, could have been another winter sport. We have a concession for UK athletics for using it during the summer. We have concessions for community use through the year and we have concessions for events, uh, some big concerts during the summer as well. Um, so West Ham United are now the highest ranking bidder and we're just working through the terms of a commercial agreement with them and London Borough of Newham who are their partners um, for the use of the stadium. It's been a difficult process um, and I think there's a lot of figures being banded around, there's still some money to be spent on trying to find a solution that brings seating over athletics tracks so that one can actually bring spectators right over the top <coughs> of the tracks. Um, for football matches. Um, I think there will be cost implications on that, but I think in the long term, if we get a stadium that is used through the year and actually can make some money rather than just be a drain on resources, um, that will be a success. Um, the Aquatic Centre and the Multi-Use Arena have been let out together under operating contracts to Greenwich Leisure, who are a major sports operator across the capital. Between them, they'll more or less break even. Um, probably turn a very small surplus. The aquatic centre will be a lot more expensive to run and swimming pools generally don't make money. The uh, Copper Box multi-use arena is a much more flexible facility that can be used for gigs and commercial events as well as for sporting activity. So the two of them will work quite well as a set. And in terms of community use, we've made the commitment that their prices will be pegged at the same price as the average of the local boroughs. So they will be accessible and there will be um, periods set aside for local communities to use, as well as clubs, as well as high performance sports, uh, men and women. And I think it's a balance that I'll return to again, the balance between different uses, between the community, the elite, between um, new residents, between old residents, some of those balancing acts one has to um, uh, continually adjust during legacy. Um, south of them we have the ArcelorMittal Orbit, um, uh, a distinctive sculpture, I sometimes hum the theme for more of the world when I put this slide up. Um, distinctive sculpture with Anish Kapoor's uh, design but supported by Cecil Balmond from Arab's engineering skill. Um, that will be operated as a visitor attraction. Um, again, possibly turning a small surplus, particularly if we play in corporate hospitality. And will be part of the Olympic Park offer that you don't just come and look at the park, you come and look at the park and go up the orbit and go and get something to eat and go and visit temporary attractions, temporary events that are going on. So trying to develop that mixed and balanced offer for visitors who will actually bring money into the local community is very important. And this just expresses the different character of the parks and also the different characters of the programming. One of the things we'll need to do when we start reopening the parks, which will take place in phases, we open the, begin to open the North Park in uh, summer this year and open the full North and South Parks and all the venues apart from the stadium by spring next year is the North Park will be much more low scale informal programming South Park will be big, perhaps more commercial there's certainly larger numbers of events so around these venues um, we'll be starting to try to build up um, new communities new development We've given the different areas these names. I'm not sure whether they're going to stick. I don't think names invented uh, by planners ever do stick. Um, but these five neighbourhoods with different 
much higher density development down around Marshgate Wharf, around the stadium, with the accessibility through to Westfield and Stratford City. Chobham Manor, which I'll return to, very much terraced housing, much more um, family type development. And then a mix in Sweetwater and Eastwick, these two areas alongside Fish Island and Hackney Wick. And a mix of residential and industrial and employment used down Pudding Mill, running down towards Three Mills. So 11,000 new homes with an emphasis that's been persistent through both mayors on family housing and large units, um, a reasonable level of affordability, and as part of the planning commission we have the obligations to build um, two primary schools, a secondary school, a large number of nurseries, and health centres and other community facilities. First, new, first of those new neighbourhoods is Chobham Manor, the area just to the north of the Athletes Village. And you can see in this image contrast between the Athletes Village block formation and the much lower rise um, character of Chobham Manor. That's intentional because we want to make this an area with high proportion of family housing. Just out of shot there, there is the Chobham Academy, a new school. So you start having one of the anchors that will draw people into the area. Um, and also, we don't want to be offering exactly the same thing as is already available um, in the Athletes Village and in many of the new developments that have sprung up along uh, Stratford High Street in recent years. And you can see just the other side, uh, alongside the Broadcast Centre, plan to put further, um, uh, further terraced housing along there. So our first home should be ready early in 2014. Um, we're just finalising negotiations with um, Taylor Wimpy. We also hope to put in place as part of that a community land trust, which is a mechanism to enable recycling of um, proceeds of land sales into a community trust to um, hold those uh, in perpetuity. Um, and those are just some images with a lot of hollyhocks. But just to show the type of image, the type of development that we're looking for, it is the three and four storey house and maze neck type development, rather than the very high rise um, tower blocky development that you're seeing in the Athletes Village. Um, on the other side of the park, we have the Crescent Broadcast Centre, we're also getting near to the end of our negotiations on that. We have iCity uh, Consortium select as a preferred bidder to operate that as a mixture of um, technology centre, um, a data centre, a start-up space um, and creative industry and broadcast studios and we've actually had very good news in that BT Sport have been identified as the first anchor tenant there. They're going to be running two or three new sport channels to try and compete with Sky Sports uh, and other sports broadcasters. Um, and the long term aim is that will generate more than 4,000 jobs on site multiplied up to 6,000 or so if you look at the ancillary jobs created. So those are some of the new commercial and development opportunities around the park. Um, now I'm going to talk about the convergence objective that underpins everything we do and is written in by the Mayor of London into our core purpose of the Legacy Corporation. Um, convergence is not one of these words that springs, springs up and it's not perhaps the most... It's an easy to capture uh, concept which is this area for many, many generations has had um, worse prospects, the people living here have had worse prospects than London's population as a whole. And within 20 years, so as a long-term objective, the aim is that people in the five, four, five, six boroughs around the Olympic Park will have the same social and economic indicators, so social and economic chances as the population of London. So we're keen to work closely with local communities. We've got a whole range of projects up and running now to try to 
create a park that has a sense of ownership among people who've not actually visited it for five, six, seven years when it reopens. That's difficult, so we're working with local youth groups, we're working with interim uses around the park edge, things like the ViewTube Cafe on the Greenway, for those of you who visited the area, um, different projects in Hackneywick, projects with local schools, to try to create that sense of ownership, this being a park that works first and foremost for local people when it reopens. <coughs> We're also working <coughs> with Westfield with, with other partners to try to make jobs as accessible as possible locally. Sorry, it's jumped again. Well, um, this slide shows some of the um, commitments we've had from our early contractors in terms of local employment. Um, while construction level, you tend still to have quite a heavy, quite a large proportion of the workforce which is transient in nature. For our long-term state facilities management contracts and venue management contracts, we're getting commitments of 70 to 85 percent local employment, so that local people will genuinely be seeing lo genu will genuinely be seeing economic benefit um, from uh, the new development within the Olympic Park. As I say. Um, transformation trouble manor um, construction targets are slightly lower but we're aiming to push those up through subsequent uh, phases of development um, and we have a whole range of projects in what we might call the, the former fringe this is an area that uh, used to be talked of as the Olympic Park fringe I think that's an unhelpful term now because it implies that it's on the edge of something rather than part of something but there's a lot of change going on in areas like Hackneywick um, where the station needs upgrading, probably by both. Similarly, the station and road upgrade works are needed. Um, the development proposals at Bromley by Bow um, fell at the compulsory purchase order stage, which was for a new Tesco superstore, but also residential development and library alongside it. Um, in Hackney Wick, there are a range of proposals for a series of sites to the north and south of the railway station, and there are proposals coming forward from locations like Neptune Wharf. And in these areas, um, we are, <coughs> I suppose we have two hats. We're both a regeneration agency who in the times are trying to get alongside some of these schemes and help to make them happen in the typical regeneration over development way. But we're also the planning authority, so in some cases it will be our role to police these schemes to test whether they actually do meet local planning objectives and to develop a local plan that can make sense and order out of a very fast-changing area of London. I think making order out of it may be too ambitious, make sense of a very fast-changing area of London and ensure that we don't see what, to be frank, along Stratford High Street has been some completely random development of um, one-off tower blocks uh, with no relation to the surrounding area um, or to each other. Um, I'm going to close now by just talking about where we are in our programme. Um, we're... Uh, <coughs> Our big objectives over the next few months are to get the stadium deal finalised, um, to get the uh, use of the press and broadcast centre finalised, but actually our primary focus is on the reopening of the park. We have a series of events going on this July, both community events and more commercial events, of which details have been coming out in the press and generally surprising me as well as anyone else. Um, this July, well, a year after the Games took place, and then <coughs> And that will also see the reopening of the Copper Box um, and later this year of the Velodrome and Velo Park. And then into next year we'll be reopening the Aquatic Centre and the South Park where we're doing extensive landscaping works. And then in 2016, 2017, well 27, 2016, 
The stadium will be reopening with the World Athletics Championship taking place there in 2017, um, and also the Paralympic Games World, the Paralympic World Championships in 2017. So alongside all of that, we are going to be developing the local plan that will be out for consultation to the formal planning process. And alongside that, we'll be getting in place uh, the first phase of development on Chobham Manor and starting to work with uh, development partners on future phases of um, redevelopment of the site. So it has a trajectory that goes from being this place apart, this place characterised by these big box industrial and railway line uses as shown on this A to Z map to one with <coughs> this exceptional collection of unique Olympic and Paralympic Games facilities and these large concourses and walkways to something that our aim fits in, retains that unique character in the core but also fits into and becomes part of the fabric of East London around it. And that brings me to just perhaps a few closing um, thoughts. We've had three chairmen this year in the Legacy Corporation. Um, we had uh, Baroness Ford um, earlier in the year. Um, Daniel Moylan um, was appointed for uh, about three months during the summer, moved on to focus on other things. And now Boris has, um, has taken the chair himself. And I think <coughs> one of the things one's noticed through that is the way that the I think we have a clear set of objectives for the park, but there's quite a lot of detailed calibration that's taken place between those. And it's on some of these axes that the recalibration takes place. Um, the park is somewhere that's hosted an extraordinary event, the Olympic and Paralympic Games, but it is somewhere that also needs to acquire the characteristics of a normal part of London. And the balance, I think, will change over time between this being an exceptional place, a place that major world events take place, to being a place that just works and is functional as part of London. And people who've looked at other regeneration projects will know that just becoming a functional part of the city um, can be quite a tall order in itself. Aligned to that is the um, distinction between its local role and its regional and national role. Um, we've always said that when we talk about users of the park, the majority of visits to the park will always be from people who live around it. Um, I think we talk sometimes of around 9 million visits to the park, 6 million of those will be local people just going out, visiting, taking dogs for a walk, just going and strolling and exploring into the local park. How to balance those interests, which are for a nice place to go and play, that you can have a kick around, whatever it might be, with the interests of something that is an area, a place of national and regional significance, will be a balance that will continue to change. As you see, we've talked about the North Park being much more typically park-like and the South Park being a bigger event space, I can see that relationship will change over time. The balance between commercial and community interest, um, you can see we've tried to strike that in the way we've set up the venue operations, that local people will be able to access them for the same price as they access other facilities, but there will always be pressure on costs and there is always pressure for more commercial exploitation. Um, one of the, the Mayor of London has committed to giving a level of revenue subsidy to us in the long term. But beyond that, we are expected to uh, meet some of our own costs. A good example would be sponsorship. Um, the Olympic movement gets it in the neck a lot for the sponsors it chooses, the McDonald's and Coca-Cola's of the world, the extent to which the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park will be sponsored and will be sponsored by similar types of organisations is one that's still in the balance, and there's a trade-off to be made there. Um, and lastly, I suppose the balance is in its effect on the local area. Um, 
the Olympics and Paralympic Games, the preparations for them, have undoubtedly already been a transformative event and a transformative process for this part of London. They've changed the way people see it, and they've changed the way that part of London is actually operating. But we do want, in the long term, to actually... We don't want this to be a process of change that just goes in and sweeps away everything that came before. This needs to be an area that remains part of East London and retains some of that character. If the character of Hackney Wick, for example, or um, Leighton, was lost to the Olympic Park um, and entirely erased by those, that would be a tragedy. But at the same time, if the Olympic Park didn't make a permanent difference to areas that have been in poverty, um, had social problems for many generations, that would also be a waste of opportunity. Um, and I'd like to take questions or discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. So at this point we open it up to questions from the floor and if um, you could just say who you are when asking a question, introduce yourself, that would help us greatly in the room. So first question. I'm kind of first. Uh, Duncan Bay University of Westminster. Um, I just, I mean, a lot of what you're trying to do in terms of the plan is, is very impressive and the time scales and the mechanism and the phasing is actually quite structured. The fundamental question I've got is how you actually achieve the sustainable res the social sustainability of the new residential communities, both in terms of the current financial context and what's likely to be the long-term financial context. So you've got targets for family housing, you've got targets for affordable housing, the design for Chobham Manor has those built in. The question I've got is how much of the affordable, affordable provision is actually going to be affordable by low-income households without dependence on housing benefit? Now the basic capital grant is gone, unless you've got some kind of long-term special deal, and that's an issue for the next government as well as this government. Mm. But also, I mean, I'm very pleased that you said this has to be something different from what happened in Stratford High Street, and I was always sort of staggered how slow both Newham and Ken, as the previous mayor, were to realise the disastrous consequences of just letting everything go through the planning system because it's high and looked as if it might be expensive. Um, but uh, the, the fundamental question is, how are you actually going to ensure that the homes are actually made available to local people, that they're not just swallowed up by the international investment market, given how much of Stratford and other locations has gone to the international market and is bluntly not meeting London's housing needs in any fundamental manner? And, and that, in a sense, is a, is a challenge of how you do that in an area which will have attractions for international investment, but for investment purposes and not actually for occupation and long-term effective use. Are you going to back <coughs> foreign purchases from buying homes? Um, I don't know whether we could do that. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm defined foreign. Um, yes, I, but I, I, think that, I think you're quite right saying it is obviously a challenge delivering housing that is genuinely affordable within this you know, under this government's policy. Um, the market rent affordability levels are obviously quite different from what people have understood as affordable. We are in a privileged position. We don't have a special deal on capital grant funding. However, we're not perhaps seeking the same, well, we're not seeking the same rates of return as a commercial developer would. Um, so, for example, we can look at doing things like community land trust by foregoing a, uh, a level of potential land value receipt. We are under some constraint to deliver a financial return to repay some of the money the National Lottery put in. We can't ignore that. But we have uh, negotiated in the Section 106 agreement we've negotiated for the Legacy Community Scheme, which is our main outline planning permission. There is a 
a trade-off between, and you'll be familiar with these mechanisms a lot more than me, Duncan, between the viability and the affordability, so that as we go through, the level of affordable housing in different phases can be adjusted in order to uh, meet changing viability at different stages, but the 35% is an overall target. Um, so we are also looking at different models of housing, and uh, it's early days, but looking at perhaps more rental, uh, rental housing as well as sale housing, and we're looking to retain, as far as possible, um, freehold ownership of the land so that we can take the active management role of not just letting this be uh, picked off and dispersed as housing, but to retain and sell along leaseholds where possible rather than full freehold disposal. So we're trying to retain as much control as we can over the way the estate's managed. I don't know the details of exactly what affordability um, structures we're putting in place at this stage, but we do have a bit more room for manoeuvre <coughs> than um, a normal commercial developer would. Michael Edwards, uh, UCL. Um, I work in an institution which has got itself involved in uh, all this. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I found out about it as we all did at UCL from the Evening Standard in the same way that the uh, residents of Cups stayed on that. And our, our Lords and Masters are in discussions with uh, New Council about a big new campus on the site of Congress Estate, as you know. Um, and a lot of us who work in the other studies, planning, architecture field at UCL are very unhappy about the way this is going because it really does look like part of that process in which low income communities which quite cohesive but viable communities getting raised swept away and replaced by something washing. And uh, you see how this is a very posh institution like as clearly you are making to happen. But it does seem to be a real dilemma. Uh, if other regeneration is supposed to be something which benefits established or existing communities, then this is not it. Now, I'm sure you won't want to say much about that particular project, but it really does sharpen, sharpen mm -hmm. highlight a really serious dynamic of what you do. Because you can easily achieve this convergence between East and West London by erasing displacement the poor people and replacing them with the rich, but that is the point. Yeah, I, I can't say too much about that proposal. I, I don't actually know too much of the detail of what they're actually proposing at this stage. I think. <coughs> I think there's always been, I, we've always been uh, very positive about higher education interest in the area. We're very positive about the joint campus that UEL have with Birkbeck opening the other side of the road. Um, we're positive that Loughborough is planning to come in as part of the iCity Consortium for um, in the Broadcast Centre. And <coughs> yeah, obviously interest from an institution like UCL is a, a, vote of, a vote of confidence in Stratford and that part of East London. In relation to carpenters, I think, and this is a personal view, I think it's unfortunate the, the way the news came out. It's extremely unfortunate the discussion has been about, so far as, as far as I can see, has been about just moving people on rather than what the deal is that would actually could actually work for people on that estate. Um, the estate's been scheduled for comprehensive redevelopment and is partly, parts of it are emptied out. So the estate's been in limbo for a period, and so I'm, 
But I think that if one manages that in a process that simply says that the hundreds of people currently living there should just leave and go without actually finding a way of accommodating them within a local area, I think that would be very unfortunate. But the challenge, and I'm not sure any development's quite got this right yet, is always the extent to which a level of gentrification is actually a positive thing, does actually bring more money and more diversity into an area, and the extent to which that is simply a displacing um, and a replacement strategy which simply moves one set of people on and brings some slightly wealthier ones into their place. Trying to balance those two, I wouldn't apologise for wanting to seek a level of gentrification, because this simply becomes an enclave of ABC ones and the rest of East London is untouched. I think that would be very unfortunate. Sorry, that wasn't a coherent or official answer, but that's fine. I think you're allowed on it. John Hall of No Fixed and Bowed. I just wonder, looking back at all sorts of things like this, and development area looking at different neighbourhoods in the LEDC area, which Eric moved several decades ago. Will there be any scope? I know that this scale of analysis and description of a uh, a very exciting future has to be very generalised um, and therefore you're sort of uh, looking from a distance and not at individual streets as well. But will there be any slopes in the E20 area? Now, by slopes, I, somebody will remind me who came up with this wonderful acronym before acronyms were even given the name acronyms. Space left over after planning, uh, which implies that there might be a degree of anarchism that is uh, encouraged or allowed or somehow works its way into this otherwise very tidy-minded strategic <laughs> approach. Yes, it reminds me of that saying about, um, Tor uh, about Toronto, I think it was um, Peter Houston of New York designed by the Swiss, producing East London designed by the Swiss. Um, I think the will, and one of the things I didn't touch on actually is, you know, we're bringing forward those development plots over the period up to 2030. So some of those will be vacant for 10 years. Now, something that London's been very good at, and you've got uh, with Eric Reynolds down at Trinity Boy Wharf, someone who's actually very good at managing these processes, has been bringing in interim uses, sometimes money making, sometimes not money making, that sometimes take root as well. I think one of the challenges if you introduce interim uses is they end up like Gabriel's Wharf and they're still there 20 years and nobody would dare move them on. Um, so I think certainly in the short term there will be scope to experiment with things that may or may not work, that may be informal and I think do start to reflect the character of some of the surrounding areas coming into the park and who knows, those tiny-minded pictures obviously aren't what it will look like in 2030. Some of those may stick, some of those may actually end up being um, interim to permanent. And will you have a pop-up? competition never announced this coming year or next year? Um, looking, yes, we're looking at getting um, curators to some of those spaces and different types of competitive process to get people in, yeah. Um, and some of those will be yeah, some, of the, some of those will be curators who actually bring in their own stuff, some of those will be just competitions for other ideas. I'll give you more details. Thank you. Uh, well, can I kind of ask a, a sort of uh, Surely it can't be over gentrified and tidy kind of question and the other way around really. Which is that as you your one of your maps memorably show, this area is um, has is has four boroughs mm -hmm. with borders, doesn't it? It's yeah. kind of and 
border areas are notoriously um, find it notoriously difficult to develop themselves. I mean, you know, Park Royal, Harrow Road, other parts of the city which are on borough boundaries are rarely the, the best and the most gleaming examples of what their boroughs have to offer for all sorts of electorally explicable reasons to which you put your better resources in the middle of the borough and your worse on the edge. That makes electoral sense. And here we've got four boroughs and indeed a river running through it. Now, so those, those signal systems normally work quite well against over-gentrification uh, if you look elsewhere in the city. So that's the first thing. Uh, so how, uh, I suppose, the, the question that that implies is, and you've hinted at this, is any sort of continuing governance agreement, given that this is a line around, the bit, the, this is effectively a line around the corners of four boroughs. Mm. Okay, that's the first thing. Any continuing hope for the governance of the area. Second, um, much was made during the Olympics, and it's still true, that Stratford uh, Station, Stratford, you know, the area where the stations are, is incredibly well connected, and always has been, actually. But the rest of the site, and this whole site, I think I'm right to say, is sort of, is, is of the size, I think I worked roughly looking at a map, it's an area which from south to north would be a bit like from the river to King's Cross and from Southampton Road across to Regent Street. So it's got a big area. Um, and there isn't, apart from Hackney Wick and Pudding Mill Lane, not a great deal of public transport in the rest of it. So what will happen to the rest of it when, you know, um, What's the public transport plan, I suppose, yeah. what I'm saying? Um, <coughs> I think the challenge, um, the challenge of being on the edge of the four boroughs is why actually this was established with minimal opposition from any of the four boroughs. Um, uh, not because they, I think because they, um, there were a lot of discussions. So there was a lot of discussion about legacy vehicles over the past few years. And there was discussion about whether the boroughs would set up a joint planning committee, etc., etc., etc. And I think it actually got to a stage where they found it easier that there would be something set up on which uh, all the mayors and leaders of all four boroughs actually sit on our board, but that they could hand over responsibility for planning this area to a new body. Um, so I think one of the interesting questions is how long the development corporation is in place for. Um, I think some elements of the development corporation, like its planning and plan-making function, might outlast the rest of us. So you could see one option of our exit strategy is um, park goes in some sort of community trust, um, development goes to individual homeowners or an estate manager, um, and what is retained is the plan-making and planning and regulatory function within a much smaller residual uh, London Lakes Development Corporation. That'd be interesting to. Um, get Eric's thoughts on how something like that would work. Um, in terms of the transport strategy, uh, you're right that Stratford Town Centre, Stratford Town is very well connected, everything else isn't. Um, Hackney Wick, part of, the, part of the skill is to make the best of what we've got. So making, we have a big project on with Hackney Wick Station to actually improve the connectivity over the canal and actually get the station better connected in so you can actually walk to it more quickly. Um, TFL are also con consulting on new bus routes across the park and there have been other ideas for you know, segregated busways and some of those intermediate type um, uses. The other 
possibilities that I think I've probably spoken to you about before, maybe your idea, Tony, so apologies if it is, is there's a long way between Mile End and Stratford on the central line, and whether you couldn't actually look at bringing another station in around this part of the site, um, the south of the stadium near the Pudding Knolls station, um, is an open question. The other transport that will come through here, of course, will be Crossrail, which um, adds yet another dimension of connection to it. Um, so I think in the short term we will be relying on TFLR consulting on new bus routes to service this area. Um, but in the long term I think improving the frequency and accessibility of those stations will also help. But our highest density development by far, you know, the only place where we're putting what I'd call central urban type development in the site is in the areas nearest to Stratford, Stratford Town Centre. It's these sites here, it's those sites there, it's those sites along the front of the river. Here, there will be employment use through the big car park there as well, which connects to the A12. So more employment use, there will be good access to the Hackney Week, but it won't be actually that such a, an urban type of transport accessibility. Cycles? Yes, sorry. Um, uh, yes, there will be, I mean, we have cycle paths across, across the site at the moment. We want to get the Boris bikes extended out to this bit of London. Sorry, the Barclays bikes, the free cycles, whatever you want to call them. Um, we want to get those extended out to this part of London. And the paths and walkways within the Olympic Park are you know, really well designed for cycling and for uh, wheelchair use. The, the gradient is <coughs> perfect. Um, so that does offer a way around. Um, and I think we'll have to look at ways of finding. We're also looking at car club provisions for some of the residential areas. And I think maybe if we can't get Boris bikes, we should have our own local cycle clubs to the park. Sorry, I'm not, I don't know the details of what the transport plans are. I know that there is a, 
the bus networks are being sold on as they would for any new development. I know also that the intention is that there will be easily accessible, easily walkable local community facilities. I still don't think this actually helps a person who has difficulty walking just being stranded with one corner shop. I think that people need access to a better range of facilities. So I think that, um, I think I'd, I'd like to look more at that, what transport planning is and how it deals with people with walking difficulties, but it's not, it's not an issue that's being ignored, I don't think. Um, sorry. Um, in first, in um, uh, Eric Sorensen, ex um, Thames Gateway, and one or two other things. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you, Richard, what what you what the point of this area is in terms of the red line, which is your uh, designated area, and and which is your area of influence, so to speak. Um, I, I quite understand the merits and strongly support the merits of not just concentrating on Olympic Park and. Uh, uh, Bit of Stratford City or whatever, uh, and just making that a kind of enclave of success, hopefully in, in in a wider area. So I think you have dealt with um, an error for good reason, but nevertheless an error which was made by uh, the Docklands Development Corporation in the 80s and 90s that its designated area was very tight around the old port lands. And uh, you've got all sorts of cliff edge problems in regeneration. You can see them today. You can actually walk around and see exactly what was inside uh, the LDC area because the LDC was given an absolute shed load of money by uh, even the Thatcher government. Um, and uh, and you can you can see the see the difference. So I understand the importance of not dealing with that cliff edge uh, problem and trying to encompass uh, a sensible area, but not trying to cover the whole of East London because. Um, uh, that's just not possible. But you are not, as I understand it, you are not a major investing corporation. Uh, you've got a planning power, you've got a land assembly power, which are, I agree are significant, but you have not got a massive financial resource promised to you from government to do all sorts of good and useful things through your own vehicle. Um, from reading your your um, SBG, uh, your your budget over services quite tight at present, uh, and so you can't, for example, take a whole lot of Victorian properties in Leighton and a whole lot of Victorian properties around Hackney Wick and spreading up to Homerton towards Victoria Park and down in Bow and say, hey, we're going to insulate you or we're going to give you grants to uh, improve you and so on, because you're not you're not given that resource. And I just fear you might end up a bit like the next development corporation, London Thames Gateway Development Corporation, which popped up in 2005, I think it started formally, is now finishing, or it's just formally finished in effect, I mean it's got a few residual planning powers, but basically stopped functioning uh, somewhere halfway through 2012. Um, a short life body, um, completely under-resourced, 5,000 acres, 2,000 hectares it was given, I think, completely under-resourced, and for no fault of their own, they didn't achieve a great deal. And I just, I just fear that you're going to have all the ambitions implicit in such a scale and area, as Tony said, from Regent's Park to here and uh, from King's Cross to, to the river, uh, which is an absolute massive area, but everybody beginning to wonder what is actually the point of being inside you, so to speak. Yes. Um, 
think that's a fair challenge. I, I suppose partly, part of the answer is that we've only been a development corporation established as such for a few months, and we still have to make bids into government for actually our longer term regeneration. We've got a package of money, which was actually the money for the Olympic Park Legacy Company. Um, we haven't yet made the, made the pitch for this, what's needed in the surrounding area. I also think that it is perhaps a different situation to either of its predecessor development corporations in that there is, there is market interest here. Um, you've got everyone from the Australians to the um, Qataris to the Swedes putting money into this area. So part of the challenge is less to just try and get some investment in the area and more to try and channel the investment that's coming in and to mould that so that it makes a positive difference, um, which I think is a different situation from the one that um, LDDC faced, and probably to an extent the one that the Long Thames Gateway Development Corporation faced as well. So it's not going to be easy to fund money for the My third point is out of the surpluses that we should generate from um, uh, the real estate development elements within our boundary and within our land holdings, if we can work with the mayor and work with the government and make sure the lottery is happy for those to be recycled as reinvestment in the surrounding area there's another potential source of funding. So what we've said though in terms of our capital funding is we've got to get the park right first. Unless we reopen the park successfully and make that good, we're going to be uh, lumbered with a sort of negative reputation, re reputational start that the Millennium Dome had. And we would hope over time that we can start actually spreading investment uh, more widely alongside the planning power that we can use to try and channel what's already there. I wonder if I could just ask to uh, use my decision to take upon Eric Antonio's point, just to um, get some more detail on how involved you are in sort of planning decisions in the sense on in neighbouring on your turf, so in, in, in the respective authorities but outside of your boundary. So do you, are you very actively engaged in sort of seeking to guide some of those decisions? We're a consultee on those um, and so we're making representations for me through that process. We'll be in a stronger position once we've established, at the moment, our, our planning framework is those local authorities' planning frameworks. As our own planning framework is taken through formal process and becomes the local plan for that red line area, then our representation will obviously have, have greater weight. Um, but yes, we are, we're a statutory consultee. We're trying to, because the danger is that you shift, you move one cliff edge and you create another. That's particularly challenging um, here where you've got the A12 and our boundary actually does cross over the A12 most places but actually bridging that because that is an incredibly divisive barrier um, between different areas at the moment that's a particular challenge um, but we are and we're engaged in discussions about later discussions about Stratford Town Centre um, and some of those they're interestingly different, different authorities to engage with as well um, some are more new and are very actively, actively wanting to work with us Others are a bit more. I mean, Waltham Forest only is only really is a very small corner of Waltham Forest that's in our area, and I'd say they're a bit more standbackish. They didn't want us to take Leighton Mills um, into our area. That's something that was consulted on because again, that's an area where you've got railway, motorway, and a high wall separating the Olympic Park from its surroundings. So I just had a point there, if I may, Richard. I thought Waltham Forest were terribly keen on you doing something about access into that whole park, Stratford City area, isn't that, isn't that one of their key, key requirements? They're it's very difficult <coughs> to get into yeah. the area from well, the, the They're very keen, 
they're very keen for, for something to be done with access, but they didn't want us to actually become, they didn't actually want us to no, but they certainly want you to do something. Yeah, yeah they, they, they want, want to do something. Yeah. You to pitch their, their sites. Yeah. yeah. No, that's fair. Fair point. Yeah. Uh, Alvin Carpio, a student at the LSE as well as a new resident. Um, just to look at your convergence objective. Mm. Uh, one of the biggest problems in UM has been uh, the fact that it's what, one of the highest unemployment rates uh, for young people. And I know it's in the contracts. Um, you've got stipulations for, I think, BAME, uh, members of BAME community, mm -hmm. as well as uh, residents of yeah. UM. Um, are there any stipulations for young people? Um, and also, uh, are you doing anything else on uh, youth unemployment in the area as part of this convergence objective? And if not, uh, who are you? Who else is responsible for it? We're... Um we're pushing apprenticeships very heavily on our, on our development plans as well. Um, and we've got a firm called, it's a social enterprise firm called Reds 10, working A on the apprenticeships programme and B on the job brokerage. Um, with, in terms of job brokerage, I mean, one of the key things is, you know, traditionally, is to make the link between the unemployed people who may just not know about where the jobs are coming from, may not have all the skills needed to actually apply and uh, do a good interview. So it was a very successful program run for the Westfield Shopping Centre, and we're planning to use that same network to actually start getting people into jobs on the site. Um, I think actually showing the breadth of opportunity will be on the site is one of the challenges. I think during the construction phase, construction jobs are very specific. If you're in that world, you're in that world. We're going to have jobs from catering to hospitality to sports centre management to um, personal trainers and gyms to tech jobs up in IC. So I think one of the other pieces of work we're doing at the moment is actually looking along at the long-term job demands and looking at what skills are going to be so that we can start actually getting local people excited about those. So I, mean, I think local people are a, a significant target for our job brokerage work, but it's, it's available to any local, local people who are employed in for work. Uh, Robin Brown, Just Pace. Um, you seem to be uh, a one-stop shop uh, for development land, its acquisition, plans, policies, vision, decisions, and I believe soon you will have uh, local taxation powers in the form of SIL. Uh, and um, you're known as the 34th London Borough. I appreciate that you are accountable to the Mayor. Um, but uh, you do not seem to have the same checks and balances that uh, at least 32 of the other boroughs have. Uh, and I wondered uh, uh, whether you had ambitions to develop convergence with the uh, democratic processes that exist outside uh, your red-lined uh, territory. Um, we're, not, we're not directly elected authorities, so... Um, we, as you mentioned, we, we are accountable um, to the Mayor of London and to the London Assembly as part of the GLA group. We also have the leaders or mayors of the four local boroughs on our board. And our board does also, it also operates like a local authority as it has its meetings in public. Um, papers are available to the public except where it goes and it actually, where it takes a decision to go into a confidential session as any local authority can. So. And we're also seeking to make ourselves as transparent as possible in terms of our decision making. We're working with the GLA you know, on making sure that we put as much information as possible up on our website. 
Um, at the moment, there are no intentions to make us converge as in becoming a directly elected authority. Um, and I think that would possibly be controversial with the boroughs as well. But in the context of being an appointed rather than elected body, I think there is a degree of accountability and check and balance around us. At the moment, they don't have residence associations because they're empty pieces of land, so <laughs> um, there isn't anyone living there at the moment. Um, over time, they could they could demand the right, when residents did move in, they could demand the right to start establishing neighbourhood plans as any other neighbourhood. And we might well see that in some <coughs> areas like Hackney, and Fashion, that there might well be proposals coming forward for a neighbourhood plan from those areas. Yeah, I mean, we operate, we'll operate on the basis of plots of land and we do a balancing act of how much infrastructure is needed here and, you know, does it make sense as a development parcel? The nature of the, the, nature of the place and how the place is actually identified, how people self-identify as being in the location, that's something we can't control. And I suspect those nice names we put up on the board will be forgotten in 20 years' time because people... People say when they think they live in a neighbourhood or when they think they live in a... We'd like to, people to be able to say, the reason we call, called this neighbourhood East Wick is because over time I'd like that to start being seen as part of Hackney Wick rather than as a place apart. Um, I'd like, as those A to Z photos showed, that at one stage in the future you can walk over on the bridges into where the Olympic Park was and perhaps you have something to remind you that this is where the Olympics was, but you don't have that sort of sudden and jarring contrast between one side of the river and the other. Can I ask a question which links that one with the point Christy Whitehead raised about access to disability and so on? It was very noticeable when Boris Johnson introduced his version of the London Plan mm -hmm. and it went through the examination public. But one of the few really new things in that plan, compared to the early one, had been an emphasis on this concept of the lifetime neighbourhood. And I thought remarkable how that idea, although it was only very tentatively developed in the plan, really captured support from an enormous spectrum of London organisations, from tenants associations and federations, from pedestrian groups, from cycling campaigns, environmental campaigns, a lot of disability groups, small business groups, really almost everybody except large real estate interests thought it would be really great to make it a principle of strategic planning that we should try to ensure that within short walking distance people should have access to you know, doctor, chemist, and most doctors, shop, uh, whatever. What, what you could achieve would vary according to density, according to whether you were in central London or the periphery, but as a broad strategy of 
command it enormously. And I must say, it seems to me, this could be a very good place for that concept to be explored and implemented and developed. And it comes from Boris, so he probably needs support it. Um, and it might go a long way to deal with some of these issues we have limited mobility, we have to get to London services easily and environmentally in sound ways. Yeah, I must admit, um, I've, yeah, I don't have enough detail as chapter and verse of the planning application. I suspect we have committed to meet those standards. We're certainly meeting life at home standards. I know there's something different. Sure. Um, but I, I appreciate this is different and this is about, um, <coughs> about making sure the place is adaptable and can meet the needs of all those different residents. Um, I think we are seeking to meet those standards. The spread of community facilities through the estate is something we're focused on, making sure these things are accessible. But I have to look at that and just to clarify exactly what, what we've said about lifetime neighbourhoods. I don't know off the top of my head. Can I come back also to a different set of questions? When your powers, uh, one of you, you've been saying a number of occasions that you are not maximising <coughs> market value for very good community or for planning reasons, um, but equally, Eric's point is entirely valid, there isn't a lot of money. And do you have the power or capacity to, to find a bit of this which you could absolutely maximise the value of which you own, sell it and use it for proper purposes or is that not within your capacity? Yes, we, I mean we could. Um, Which not be a good idea, I mean, I'm a simple-minded yeah. economist. Yeah. It seems to me that your actually plan is often to reduce value rather than to increase value and yet well, the areas where we find most value are the areas nearest um, Stratford Town Centre, and those are the areas where we're loading in our highest densities um, development, and that's where, particularly as those are phased later, and as house price inflation kicks up, is where we should receive the lion's share of our value from. Um, other sites, um, it is more difficult, and the Mayor has asked us to look at probably can't go into too much detail, at other options in the southern part of the site particularly, whether there are other options that could actually uh, make a better return than residential, might deliver more in terms of jobs, might deliver more in terms of capitalising on the area's reputation. Um, so it is within our powers to do that. Um, at the moment, the trouble is that the areas that we can make most money out of are the areas which it makes most economic sense to develop later rather than earlier when we start to build values. Whether we could use those to borrow against, if we've got some certainty about those values, that might be one approach to actually realising some cash value early. So I think that's something we do need to look at because the cost of implementing the planning permission is in the hundreds of millions of pounds in terms of enabling infrastructure and planning obligations. Um, now that will partly be split with developers, but some of that we, as I suppose a master developer, will need to find ourselves. Uh, money for schools, money for all sorts of different elements of that infrastructure. So, yes, we are looking at ways that we can actually make sure that we don't compromise our um, regeneration and convergence objectives while actually, without actually needing to perpetually seek funding. The, another issue is our revenue budget, running the estate, running parks and venues, 
um, parks and swimming pools are not money makers. So balancing those with more commercial activities that will actually enable the park to get as near as possible to break even is another challenge for us in the medium term. Another public sector talk of these challenges. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. Just to follow up on that, I mean, you have an impressive number of bridges or, or connections coming in around the site, and obviously, as you said to yourself, the A12 is clearly a, one of the many major barriers to the site. And in terms of, also you said about seeking to make this an ordinary part of London, just another part of London, and clearly that making those connections and making the site more permeable is key to that. I was just wondering how um, secured the funding is likely to be for all of those. That quite strong array of bridging that you have. Yeah. Um, some of that that's secured for in the funding that we've got committed, and we've got about 300, 400, yeah, should know a more precise number, about 400 million all told for transformation works being spent, really, that money is still being spent now and is being spent over the next 18 months. So some of that's secured. Um, later elements, including some of the bridges, the money isn't there yet, but there is um, there's commitment from the Mayor of London to make planning, to, to make sure that we can deliver um, these community scheme planning, um, and that was all set out as part of that. Those are all in the schedule. So I think that money, that money needs to be found. If that money isn't found, apart from anything else, we will be prevented by the planning authority from actually building, building housing. So those requirements are planning triggers, and I think the options are either the Mayor finds the money or the government finds the money or actually development has to stall for a period. So I think, I feel reasonably confident in capital terms, please don't quote me on this too, I feel reasonably confident in capital terms that we will find the funding that we need. What worries me more is ongoing running costs and making sure we can maintain the estate. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the lottery deal. How much do you have to pay the lottery back? And are, are you anticipating that there will be some referral? Because clearly, from the perspective of the rest of the country, having thrown so much of the lottery money into London once, there is surely a, a sort of regional debate about payback. And the funny thing about the lottery deal, the Mayor and um, DCMS did a deal, which I think is things in the public domain, uh, March last year, which actually represents a significant improvement on where it's been. It says, of receipts, you know, the first 200 million odd goes to the Mayor of London, and the next tranche is shared 75 lottery, 25 Mayor of London, until the lottery has had 675 million repaid. Now, if you add up those bits and do the calculation, that means about 1.2 billion pounds receipts. One of the interesting facts about that is that there is actually no time scale attached to that number. Um, so the lottery is as happy with 675 million 2012 prices as 675 million 2030 prices. Um, the Secretary of State has said that the lottery will start seeing its money paid back in the mid-2020s. On the um, projections we've got, that still looks possible. The, the challenge is that things like, you know, things like house price inflation uh, make a huge, huge difference to this. So over that 25, that 20 year period, a 1% change in house price inflation creates or destroys 200 million pounds worth of value. So these are highly sensitised to all sorts of things we have no idea of predicting, which is what is going to happen on the housing market, etc. So what we've said so is that- 30% fall in value might give you some difficulty. Yes, that would be slightly <laughs> tricky. <laughs> 
Um, so what we said is there are, you know, depending on what the, how those things land, depending on those outcomes, there are circumstances which, in which the lottery would get repaid in full. If house price inflation doesn't hit the right numbers, that wouldn't happen. Okay. These these large projects are actually could be could be risky, and there are a lot of uncertainties that can be in, uh, being encountered in the in the coming years. One of those is the sustainability of the of the communities. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, all the values of the sport will be maintained. And that means that in a few years, in ten years, for example. Uh, the states will be busy, uh, plus the road will be busy, and these communities maybe they won't like uh, having these busy times all the time. So perhaps uh, the way to continue and to have the, the, the project success was at that time to reevaluate uh, um, and demolish those venues, possibly, or perhaps uh, have more commercial. Uh, areas around it. How do you consider this kind of uncertainty that might come might come up? Um, yes, to a point. Um, couldn't tell the mayor we want to demolish the orbit and don't set him terribly. Um, I I think I think that's a really I mean, that's a really good point. I think one of the th one of the ways that this area will rebalance over time. We have a lot of big sporting events coming in the next few years while the focus is still on it. I would imagine we have a decade of that. We have everything from the World Athletics Championships to maybe diving championships to the gay games. Apparently. So there'll be a lot of highly active big events going on for a period of, I'd say, the next eight years or so up to 2020. I think after that, this will start to become a more quiet, calm part of London. Um, we've had some internal discussions about the extent to which having a football uh, stadium with 40 to 60,000 people turning up every other weekend actually makes a place more lively than some other people want to be or actually um, creates a challenge for local residents um, and you can argue that either way. I think that the will, I think if you live in, if you end up living in these bits you're going to be in a noisy urban location. If you, if you live in more over this side it will perhaps be slightly quieter and that won't be main thoroughfares but I think in the medium term we will inevitably come back and think again about some of these facilities. I think you could say that about the stadium, depends on how successful football clubs make it. Um, you could certainly say it's about the broadcast centre in the long term, um, you know, it's not a long life building, it's sort of 10 to 15 year building that. Um, however, for the moment and for the foreseeable futures we have operators in those buildings, but what we'll have to do is we'll have to keep on reassessing um, what our plans are, depending on what actually works, we haven't done this yet, so um, we'll have to evaluate on the basis of what is a success and what is starting to be a bit underused, a bit drab, a bit sad, and those buildings may have to come down. Thank you. We, we need to stop there, so if I can thank the floor for the questions, but most of all, Richard, for a fantastic presentation. Thank you.